This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hello, I'm Dr. Clarence Schuler, and I had the privilege of being on Dr. Karen's show today. And here are a couple of things that you might be interested in that you might really want to hear. One is how we can alleviate the fear of dealing with difference. I think another thing that's really important is the benefits of having cross-cultural friendships as a personal, as an individual, and also in the workplace. So I think just those two things will help us to really understand diversity better. So listen in. Our guest today has been with us in the past for several other shows. We've talked about executive marriage and also racial unity. So racial unity expert, Dr. Clarence Schuler, has released a new book with New York Times bestselling author Gary Chapman. The new book is titled Life-Changing Cross-Cultural Friendships, How You Can Help Heal Racial Divides One Relationship at a Time. In the United States, with escalating conflicts about how to represent our history as a country and also which historical artifacts to retain or remove, this topic seems particularly relevant. So I want to remind you about Dr. Clarence Schuler's background. Dr. Schuler is the president and CEO of Building Lasting Relationships. He's an author, marriage counselor, speaker, and life and relationship coach. As a diversity consultant, he has assisted numerous clients through his diversity seminars and also hiring people of color and women in decision-making positions, including the War College of the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Army's European-based Equal Opportunity Advisors, Evangelical Free Church of America, Moody Bible Institute, Navigators, Association of Christian Schools International, Wycliffe Bible Translators, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Athletes in Action, Crowell and Orchard Foundations, and Mississippi Valley State University and Historically Black College. He's authored more than 10 books, including Winning the Race to Unity, used by colleges and graduate schools as a textbook, inspired Wheaton College's first ever Civil Rights Movement Conference. Dr. Schuler has been featured in Essence Magazine, Discipleship Journal, Black Enterprise, and other magazines, as well as radio, including Dr. Gary Chapman's Building Relationships. He's on the board of Fatherhood Commission with Stephen Kendricks of the Kendrick Brothers Filmmakers, and he is also in business with his wife, Brenda Schuler. They are veterans of the pastorate, a variety of nonprofits, and corporate consulting. They reside in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and are the parents of three adult daughters. So, Dr. Shuler, thank you so much for joining me again, for being here on The Voice of Leadership and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership to share your wisdom, insights, and strategies from your new book. Well, Dr. Karen, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you. So I'm honored to discuss this topic with you. I'm so excited that you're here to discuss this topic too. And because I am familiar 
with your past books, and we've mm. talked in the past, the first thing I want to ask you is how this new book is different from Winning the Race to Unity, for example, or from any of your other books. Well, that's a really great question. You know, Winning the Race to Unity was actually didn't turn out, I started to do this, but it's actually an academic book. It deals with a lot of history, a lot of research, it's all documented because we were saying some radical things. This book is really about a friendship. It's based on a 54-year friendship with me as an African-American, or really a black guy with a white guy that started back in 1968 when I was 14 years old. And uh, a friend of mine, he was invited by some white girls to go to this church that was white. He was going to integrate school. I was going to all black school and I was his bodyguard. He was only four feet, eight inches tall. And I was much bigger. I was four feet nine. And so, uh, you know, back then you never went to a white situation by yourself. So we went together and that was, uh, and at that church, uh, Gary Chapman came on a basketball court and that's how we started our friendship. You know, you mentioned a little bit about this in our last episode, talking about that friendship and that relationship. What role did Gary Chapman have at the time and how did the relationship start? Was it amicable from the beginning? Was it difficult? How would you characterize it? Well, you know, even before relationships started, I, I don't know if I told you this, but our family had a family town hall meeting to see if we could even go to a white church because, you know, allegedly uh, a soup denomination of whites were bombing black churches in the South. So there was a real fear by going. We really didn't trust white people. We basically and thought white people were bad and, and couldn't be trusted. So that's why I was going at Russell to protect him. But when Gary came on the court, I think I was 14. So as a, so for a white man to approach me and be friendly, be courteous, ask me how I'm doing. Actually, honestly, uh, Dr. Karen, it was kind of surprising. It kind of took me aback. It disarmed me. And then we played ball for a while. Then he'd stop and teach a little Bible study. But even in the Bible study, it was kind of elect. It was it wasn't a lecture. They were asking us questions. And so he seemed to enjoy that. And then we ate after that, and they shared the gospel. And so where I was, I'd never really heard about Christ as a personal relationship that He could be my Savior, so to speak. We preached about it and you heard about it, but that personal relationship piece I hadn't heard before because I was pretty active in my church, maybe doing a lot of things I probably shouldn't have been doing and not paying attention to the sermon. So that's, I I can't blame my pastor. It was probably me. You know, that's interesting because it sounds like right from the beginning, he was demonstrating a level of respect, a level of engagement, wanting to know who you were and, and treating you like a person. Yeah. And, you know, where I was, this is Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You didn't get that. You know, we had KKK parades uh, through the city until the Black Panther showed up. Then that ended the parades. And so I was going to be a Black Panther. So as soon as I get out of high school, I'm going to be a Black Panther because I'm not going to take all the stuff I see my dad taking. So meeting him, I mean, him eventually leading me to Christ two years later really changed my worldview. It was really a radical change for me. You know, this is such an interesting story because I think a lot of times because of the various different divides Mm -hmm. between groups of people, you're on different sides of the railroad tracks or whatever, and you're apart from each other, you don't really get to know one another and therefore the stereotypes can prevail and we can Mm -hmm. think some things about those other people that might not even be true. And so 
just because you're having a real relationship with Gary, you can get past the stereotypes and recognize hmm, we may even have more in common than we thought we had before. Well, it was different, you know, and it's funny you should say that our community was divided by railroad tracks. So to have a friend who was white, it was wild. And then at one point he started coming to my house to pick me up, to take me to Bible studies and to the gym. We play basketball and had activities. And so even coming to our neighborhood was a big deal. And then when I went to his house, you know, whenever we crossed the tracks, people would throw bottles, call his names, all kinds of stuff. And then I saw when his neighbors look at him. And so I became worried for him and his safety by having me in his house. So it was a, it was a commitment for both of us uh, to really have this friendship that began in 1968 and continued for all these years. Given all of the, I'd say, barriers, societal barriers that were in place and that were daily reinforced, whether it be people throwing bottles at you as you're crossing the railroad tracks or whatever it might be, what was it that you both were experiencing, let's say, in the relationship that made it worthwhile to continue to cross the railroad tracks together? Well, for me, it was just different. I'm going to this forbidden territory, this forbidden land, and I'm meeting people who had previously been my enemies or still are, and I'm trying to figure this thing out. I'm 14, so I'm incredibly curious, but also I'm invincible because in my mind, because I'm a teenager, I can outrun everybody. And, you know, teenagers, we don't think about danger. We just think about what we want to do. A guy asked me that when we spoke together in Chattanooga in February, and I said, I think at that point in time, God was calling me and towards salvation. And so I, it was the call of the gospel. It was seeing the gospel in this adult man who's spending time with me. And I love my dad. My dad's my hero. My dad saved my physical life. But my dad, we were poor. Actually, we were poor, we were poor. And so my dad's working two or three jobs to support us. So he didn't have a lot of time to spend with me. So be a 14-year-old guy and have an adult male spend time with you, that, that's huge. That's really wonderful. I'm so glad you unpacked that part of it, that there was some value exchange going on that fueled the fire, that kept the relationship going in spite of the opposition, in spite of the environment and the resistances and so on that were going on all around you. So if we just fast forward a little bit in this sense, people today thinking about this as adults, you were young at the time, Mm -hmm. you were 14, adults coming together and they want to make friends Mm. across these different barriers, across the different racial divides. What's involved in that? And how might they have to step outside of their comfort zone? A lot of times, so the majority culture, there's what we call the fear of the unknown. Because if they're in control of society, but they don't really have to be to learn or, or meet or know or appreciate people who are different from them. Whereas people who are different have to learn the system to manipulate the system to survive. And so for them to step out of comfort zone, we have our personal histories, all these different things. I think it has to be prayer. I think I also think there has to be patience. And I think there has to be an openness. So I think we have to understand that, that that's important if you're going to step outside your comfort zone. And I think also as Christians, it says, well, I think in 1 John 5, 14, that if we pray according to his will, he hears us and he grants us those requests. Well, we know that God wants all people to come to know Christ, to come to know him. And so it's really being obedient, but there is some work involved. And then the Bible talks about we should love everybody. Well, biblical love is really in action. And so 
it's not just about our emotions. You know, when we think about uh, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, it says discipling all nations, you know, go to all nations. Well, that's everybody. And so I think it's important. So, and then also in first, and not in first John, but in John chapter 13 and 14, it talks about that all people know us by our love for each other. So that's what we were doing. But there are times that even in his church and people he knew didn't appreciate him having a relationship with me, or they were afraid of him having a relationship with me. So, so you do have to step out your comfort zones. He was really being questioned about how white he was. And then there are times I'd be questioned about how black I was to have a white friend and vice versa. So there were sacrifices made and there was, um, and there was people just kind of question what's going on here. What's, what's going to happen. And I can see with my dad and my mom, they're kind of wondering what's, what's happening here. But I think they respected him because he was a minister. Mm, okay. And so all of these years later, if you had to say to someone, because you had to go through all of that scrutiny and people questioning both of your motives and wondering if this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And somebody says to you now, what's the evidence that this really was a good idea? What would you say? Well, I'd say it really changed my life because first of all, I came to know Jesus Christ. And that was the most important decision that I think anybody has to make, whether you accept Christ as a savior or not. So that was that was big. I think it expanded my worldview that I went from not just knowing and understanding blacks or African Americans, but I knew whites and I knew the system. But I also helped me with my prejudice that, hey, I can't say all whites are bad. Mm-hmm. And so that forced me to now look at people as individuals and not to prejudge every person who was not like me or to pre or is the same as a male, the male chauvinist, and I'm not respecting women. And so you have to treat every woman as an individual and as special, just like you do everybody else. So, so I think that really began to help me give people more benefit of a doubt. Yeah, when I think about it from a biblical perspective, I know that God says things like there's neither Jew nor Greek, mm-hmm. you know, we're all one, you know, in Christ Jesus. And clearly, if we look around, you know, in nature, we see he's got all different varieties of, and colors of flowers and mm-hmm. animals and everything else. Right, right. And so if anything, you know, God is certainly is a proponent of diversity. Yeah. How else would you describe God in this sense of being a, an advocate? you know, for diversity? Well, you know, when you think about diversity, the workforce, you know, executives or companies that are successful are diverse companies. American companies that want to compete for the global dollar, I think we talked about this last time. If they're not diverse, they're not going to get that global dollar. But diversity brings about problem solving. It brings about more creativity. If you're just one race or one gender, then you're limited in your creativity. You're limited and your ability to solve problems. And so, so I think it's important just from a secular perspective or, you know, to understand that. But if, but, and you already touched on it, God is a God of difference. If you understand 1 Corinthians 12 about the spiritual gifts, he talks about those different gifts and their abilities. And what's significant is that there's unity with those spiritual gifts, but there's also an interdependency. And just like Dr. Karen, your gifts and abilities, I probably don't have. And so if we're going to the same church, then that means your spiritual gifts, your talents are not for you. They're for me because I, I learned and vice and, and then mine are for you. And so we grow together. But there's also, a, you know, a dependency that's, that's involved there, interdependency, just like you and Greg in your marriage, there's an interdependency there. 
but you two are very different. You probably think differently. You process differently. You have different likes, but you're better together. This is my wedding vow that I wrote for Brenda. We're better together for God's glory than we are apart. Amen to that. That is completely the truth. And you and I talked about that a little bit too in the marriage segment that we yeah, did yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I just think that clearly when you bring many different people together, another component is there's going to be some conflict because we have yeah. different worldviews. We're coming from different lenses, different perspectives. Right. So what's your advice and counsel to people on dealing with that natural conflict that emerges and now it's across differences. So that adds another layer. When Brenda would say to me, we need to talk, I would kind of cringe. But because my, my male filter was hearing her say, I did something wrong, you know. And so um, right or wrong, that's what I would hear. And but here, well, what I learned when we learn to handle conflict correctly, we might not like what the other person had to say. But when we hear it, it can actually make us better because we learn to work through it. And it's not just her job to make it better. It's not just mine. It's our job together. I think, you know, when we come for different filters, different understandings, different personal histories, there's tremendous potential for conflict. But what we have to do is have patience and say, this person is different from me. And I guess the other thing, Dr. Karen, we need to listen carefully, not to try and win the conflict, but to gain understanding, which also means we may ask some clarifying questions. Like, am I hearing you saying this? Or from my perspective, I think, are you doing this? And, and when we do that, that gives us opportunity to grow and learn. And so I, I think that's what that's all about. So I think that's how we do that. And so for companies that do that, for marriages that do that, I think they'll have great success because you actually learn how to be a better friend or a better spouse working through conflict. That this is really important to that person, may not be important to you. And I think that companies that don't do that and learn about different groups, their market becomes smaller because they, they don't really make in their resource or products that reaches everybody. So, so I think that's the, the real issue. And, and marriage is where people don't listen to each other. A lot of times they don't survive. Oh, yeah, that's completely true. And you said a couple of things I think are really important to point out. You talked about the opportunity to grow and learn together. Yeah. And you also talked about the mutual responsibility yeah. for working through the conflict. It's not just on one side or the other. Right. You're both owning it together. You're walking through it together and getting through it together and, and to a, the other side, which could really be a better place than where you were to begin with. Exactly. We shouldn't fear conflict. We should actually embrace it because we should say, you know, if we work through this conflict together, uh, we're going to be better on the other side. You're, you're exactly right. I might not want to hear what needs to be said, but the other thing is I need to trust the other person saying that. And that comes from a relationship that comes from a friendship. And we can agree to disagree, but if I'm really a good friend of that person and it's a cross-cultural relationship, then at least I want to hear them out. And again, understanding is not equal agreement, but what understanding often does, it usually eliminates, alleviates fear and it usually alleviates frustration. And if we get past that, then we can use the process and work through the conflict. 
I wanted to touch on this notion of friendship because okay. in our society, particularly when it comes down to, I'll say, diversity issues, there's been, I'll say, a theme for a while of tolerance. And mm. tolerance is very different from friendship. So right. talk a little bit about what is the value add of friendship in comparison to just tolerance? Well, tolerance or even acquaintance, according to my mom, is that an acquaintance is someone who's with you where everything is going well. But when things get difficult, they're gone. They're not really for you. And so tolerance is very similar. It means I will let you hang around from my perspective, as long as you're not causing me problems or messing with my status quo. But as soon as you do, then I'm not going to see you anymore. I'm going to leave or, or I'm going to fire you or whatever. So I think that's a real big difference. A true friendship means that you and I can disagree, but it's not going to affect our friendship. And because we are friends, I'm saying, well, why did Dr. Karen say that? Let me, let me think, because she's a friend, she's smart, she's articulate. What does she mean by that? And I'm thinking like that. And then I'm going to probably get convicted by the Holy Spirit and say, hey, Dr. Karen, and I'm going to probably call you and say, hey, I didn't understand what you said. What did you mean? And so I'm going to want to come to you and really get your perspective, maybe ask you to clarify what you're saying. But, but, we're, but it's based on a friendship that's been years. And so I'm not going to throw that away because we disagree about something or maybe I misunderstand something. And, and I feel the same way with you. And so we help each other out. So I think that's the difference between a friend and someone who's uh, an acquaintance or someone who just tolerates other people. Yeah, when I hear you say that, I'm thinking about in a friendship. So Dr. Clarence, we would be willing to go the extra mile yes, <laughs> with yes, each yes. other, go yes. a little deeper, just, oh, I didn't like what he said. I don't like what I thought I heard. So it's over. No, right. we, we stop and explore more and we try to come to a deeper understanding. The friendship is worth that. Well, we don't, like you said, we don't give up on each other. And there's some value in the friendship that's mutually beneficial to both of us. And then if you throw the Christian factor in, the God factor in it, uh, we can't, you know, Christians really don't stop loving each other because love is really, biblical love is about action. So we don't fall out of love with each other. But, but there may be some things that we may always disagree on, but we're still friends. Exactly. You know? And it's how we can even in today's world have friends who may have completely different political leanings and yeah, proclivities yeah, and, yeah. and may even have some different beliefs in terms of their spiritual walk and yet can still count those people as friends, respect them and love them as opposed to in order to be my friend, you have to think like me and yeah, be yeah, like me, yeah. which is limiting. Well, people who think like that or say that, that you have to be just like me are typically very insecure and very afraid of, of life and other people and probably have a poor self-image. And so when they say that, I mean, I've, I've sort of, well, I have been attacked by people who were acquaintances and tolerated me. One guy sent me an email and we, we just met, I was at his donor's church, which is predominantly white. I was introduced to a Sunday school class. We went to lunch and he, he writes me, uh, say, glad to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And then in his email, he writes, I hate critical race theory. And it just kind of came out of nowhere. There's no context. And so I wrote him back and I said, well, it was nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm a little confused. Why did you say you hate critical race theory to me? We didn't talk about it. And I asked, did you write that to me because I'm Black? Uh, that I didn't hear from for a couple of weeks or, or a month or so. And 
it was just really fast. And so I finally wrote him back because I was hearing he was struggling with the race issue. And, and, and so in the second email, he says, I'm not a racist. And my first thought is thou protest too much. <laughs> and, and, and he shared a, a bad experience he had with a black guy. And so I'm thinking, okay, he's really struggling. So we talked about that. I tried to talk to it. And then he became the expert on everything. And, and finally, I kind of said, you know what? I said, I'm not here trying to convince you of this or that. I said, but if you don't study it, if you don't know what the founders of the critical race theory say about themselves, if you're not going to listen to them, doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Then how can you say you hate it or you disagree with it? I say we need to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts who studied everything. And they even studied Paul and you see if he was okay or not. I say, but there are some principles in the critical race theory that we as Christians need to be concerned about. That doesn't mean you embrace the whole thing. I say, but the fact they talk about the haves and have nots. Well, the Bible talks a lot about poverty and wealth. We need to look at that and see what they're saying. And does it line up with the Bible or it doesn't? But to throw the whole thing out, it says, bothers me. But but Dr. Karen, the biggest thing that concerns me, whether you're for or against critical race theory, I'm not really pushing that one way or the other today. But if we're going to have cross-cultural friendships, if you're not willing to study something that's important to the other person, then you say they're not really worth it. They're not, you don't value them. It's like when I went down to Brazil, we played their Olympic team back in 81. Well, I learned Portuguese. And that just really meant a lot for the people that I could speak their language. Was I fluent? No, I could, I could share the gospel and a couple other things. But, but what they appreciated that I made the effort. And so when we don't even study what other people believe, which doesn't mean we have to change our political views or all stuff like that. But if we don't even understand why they may vote differently, then that says a lot about that person in regards to uh, that I value you as a person, what you have to say, or maybe I can learn something from you, or I haven't thought about that perspective. You know, this is really an important conversation because I think one of the reasons that people sometimes stay divided is because one side may think that they understand the realities perfectly mm -hmm. on both sides. Right. Rather than to think, okay, I really need to listen and hear what this other person's reality and experience might be that's different from mine. And so rather than me trying to be an expert on them and their life and, and their journey, I, I need to become more of a student and a listener. And that's in both directions, you know, right. that's in both directions. And it doesn't always happen. So people have these prejudices, even against whether it be critical race theory or some other thing because they don't really understand it fully. They may not even know all the components of it. They have, just like those railroad tracks, they've been separated from a side of it, and therefore yeah. they have fastened in on what they can see and what they think they know. Well, you know, it's just like when I started doing my diversity consulting, I was really mentored by several women who were just, you know, very sharp, understood the lay of the land. And there was connection as a Black guy and with ladies and with women that say white males were missing out on. So I think if I'd been a chauvinist and say, well, I can't learn anything from a woman and, and these companies that were male dominated, they missed out on so much by ha not having females in position of leadership. So they have a broader market and just really learn stuff. So I think one, you have to have a, a desire to learn. And I think you have to have a desire to, I, I can learn from anybody. And so I think that's really important. So when, but when people say, I don't even want to talk about it, or is all of the devil and it's going, you know, like I said earlier, I think there's tremendous fear and insecurity in that. And it's also a lack of faith when we think about it. But they're also communicating that, hey, I don't care what you think. 
I'm not going to study this to know more about you and to get your perspective. So those kind of people are the ones who tolerate people and are acquaintances and may think they're friends, but when things get really tough, they're not going to be your friend Mm -hmm. because they don't value you because really they, in some ways they don't value themselves. Mm -hmm. And like you said earlier, they may also feel that they don't have to take Mm -hmm. that extra step and go the extra mile because if the world is set up according to their blueprints and protocols, you know, for at least a while, they can still get away with that perspective, might not stay that way permanently. And it certainly limits them in terms of a kingdom perspective and some of the work that God would want each of us to do in that sense. So let me ask you this, because, you know, we're both in Colorado Springs. And one of the things that's going on here, we have a fairly large school district here in Colorado Springs that recently released the superintendent. And one of the reasons was because the superintendent was very committed to some diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. objectives. Mm -hmm. And it really started moving forward with a diversity and inclusion, I'll say, um, program of sorts. And a number of staff who were staffing those roles and positions are now losing their jobs so that they won't even be coming back in the next school year. Mm -hmm. And so when we think that that's happening right here in our town, going on in our community, what's your perspective on those kinds of events? And how does what you've written in this book maybe speak to some aspect of it? As far as the book goes, it's about building those friendships. And the place to start is that friendship. And in that friendship, you learn about each other and your differences and stuff like that. And that's really important. I think too often people are trying to start I wouldn't say a friendship or relationship based on their political beliefs or where they believe in critical race theory or the 1619 project. And that's not the place to start. Uh, That's really not the place to start. I I think what's happening at a particular school district is that parents or whatever are driving the leadership that they're afraid of dealing diversity. What does that really mean? I've heard some parents say, well, they're saying that white people are sinful or bad or, or, or racist. Well, historically, that's been true. What they don't see is that their children begin to see their parents as hypocrites because they study the they study the history themselves. But what they what the parents don't realize is that if they would just learn this stuff, they could break down the racial barriers that they're afraid of. The other thing I think is really important that people aren't looking long term or, or seeing holistically is that sociologists say by 2042. Uh, the white race will cease to be majority in America if God didn't come back. But if you talk, if you look at birth rates and apply that to all the statistics, it's probably going to be close to 2035 to 40, where there will be a new majority in America or the white race will cease to be the majority in America. So I think a lot of people know there's fear in regards to that, but they don't really know what to do. But to fire people who are trying to really have a historical, a more accurate historical perspective on history, that's a win-win for the country. And so, but but to fight that, you're still trying to hold on to something that you really can't hold on for a long term. But in the process, they're actually turning their children against them with that particular belief. And, and, and well, not their belief so much, but their actions supporting their belief. What I'm hearing in what you're saying, Dr. Clarence, is that there really is an opportunity mm-hmm. in all of this if people would look at it as an opportunity. And if I think about friendships, 
it's useful to think about starting those cross-cultural friendships in school and exactly. at a younger age. And then you're used to it. I remember many years being around the military when my husband mm-hmm. and I were active duty in the military and seeing the children growing up in a really diverse multicultural military setting, they already had much broader perspectives Mm -hmm. and they had diverse friends, very different from some of the communities where we were located, for example, like Montgomery, Alabama, and the the local community there did not necessarily embrace cross-cultural friendships at all. But the military children, they had been doing that all of their lives and they had been enriched by it. They had been, they traveled across the globe, done a whole lot of things that were really more expansive to their education and to who they were as a person, you know, to really broaden their horizons. So I think education is really a lot about broadening horizons. And so if the schools are shutting that down, where are people going to learn it? Well, the other sad thing too, to have a black man as a head, of the su- as a superintendent leading them, that's a great role model as this whole thing about diversity comes up. And so to put him out because he's trying to actually lead and help the whole group is, is unfortunate. And again, you continue to have the same, because he probably was replaced by another person who was Caucasian. And so again, you sort of dim the hopes of people of color, not just African-Americans, but Asians, Hispanics, uh, Latinos, and our whole, Native Americans in that whole process. What does it take to do that? And when we start to speak the truth, what is it going to cost me to speak the truth? And again, you continue to overprotect Caucasian kids who need to know the truth. And if they don't learn it there, there's going to be a, a rude awakening when they get older. So the, the people who are, are doing this are not helping anyone. In fact, they're actually hurting their own, the people that they really say they love the most. It's interesting. I hope that their children will learn the truth because in some cases they might not. And, you know, therefore they might <laughs> still be laboring under a fiction about what's happened in the history of our country and, and what's gone on here. Yeah. And they may carry some of those same prejudices forward that keep them separated from people who are different so they could learn otherwise. So a lot of the same uh, problem gets perpetuated, really, because those beliefs get transferred without being questioned, without being tested, and without being juxtaposed to other information. Well, that's true. And, but, you know, there, there are more whites who are really learning and reading and experiencing things. And in another book, Gary and I wrote, called Choose Greatness, one of the chapters talked about developing verse friendships at an early age. So we were really echoing what you just said. And I think it's important. The school does provide that. And so it's, it's unfortunate that some of the parents just really interfere with that. That's, that's really kind of sad. But that is Colorado Springs, too. So, <laughs> well, so. and I still, well, okay, so given that backdrop, let me ask this. How, <laughs> how much hope do you see for the future? locally, globally, you know, in business, because there's there's some steps forward and there's also steps backwards all happening at the same time. So what's the hope that you see? Well, you know, I I do see hope. I see more whites who seem to be more friendly to me than in the past. In the grocery store, I mean, I'm going to ask about where you find this. And I mean, one lady, she, was, she said, well, it's over here. And I said, okay. And she walks me like several roads of fine. And I was just like, yeah, I said, thank you very much. And I could tell that she 
one of the book designers for my cover from one of the co uh, graphic artists for my one of my book covers uh who's white female she says you know a lot of whites feel really guilty about how blacks been treated in america and i think you're seeing some of that just through the grace of god dr karen i i've been speaking some places here in town that i never thought i'd be one invited back or invited the first time to speak and i have been blown away very much different politically from probably from where i am or used to be and god is saying i got this and so i'm speaking sharing truth and response has just really been amazing and so i i think there is hope i think there's uh i think people want to make a difference i just think we have to i think we have to step into it and so i think that's why your program what you do is so important because you're stepping into it and you're helping other people to walk with you, at least be exposed to things maybe they hadn't heard about or thought about in great depth. So I appreciate your program, not just because I'm on it, but I know you and what you teach and believe. And so I think it's really important. So I, I do I do have hope. I think it's one time I really didn't, but I, I, I do. You know, thank you for saying that, because I think what's clear about it is that God has given each one of us giftings and also platforms and opportunities that we can use for his glory. And if mm. each one of us steps into that, mm. it really does make a difference collectively, yeah. you know, when you think about it at the end of the day. So I can't just sit back and say, so-and-so's not doing their part, so I'm just going to sit over mm. here and not do my part. No, <laughs> no. Uh, the only person I can control is what I do. Right. So I can do my part and I can encourage other people to do their part as well. And then collectively, we can see the needle move, you know, in, in some of the desired directions. And, you know, nothing I'm doing, Dr. Karen, I am just really trying to speak to everybody. I'm trying to be polite, trying to be courteous. I'm saying hello to people where they speak back or not. And some people look and they're like, you know, and I say, yeah, yeah I'm talking to you. Hi, how are you doing? And they're like, well, you know, because Do I know you. <laughs> yeah, because people, you know, they still have fear of black males and stuff like that. So I'm I'm speaking and and just trying to be gracious. And and I think if people can see in us a love and reflection of Christ, no matter what our gender or our our complexion, I think that goes a long ways too. Absolutely. You know, when you were here last time, you were talking about I I'd say the emotional challenge in writing this particular book. And so you were in the middle of it back then. Okay. So I want to ask you a little bit about what was the process like for you in writing this book, you know, with Gary, because that's a different journey. First of all, writing a book <laughs> with another person is hard anyway, under yeah, any circumstances. Yeah. And then you're, you're writing about this, you know, cross-cultural friendship and God only knows where the publishers are in it and so on and so forth. So what was the journey like just to even write this book? Well, first of all, I was... I was shocked and stunned that Harper Collins wanted our book. And I'll be honest, it probably was because Gary Chapman is a New York Times bestselling author and has sold millions and millions and millions of books. Uh, but still, you know, the book basically was my idea. And in fact, we, so I was excited about that. Uh, Gary is extremely easy to write a book with. I mean, he's very unassuming. He'll say, what do you think? And, and we'll throw stuff up and we'll go with this and we can add chapters or whatever. And he's very open. If you read the introduction to our to this book, he came on, he was talking about police shootings and different stuff. But then I came back and got even more detail to it. And he just kind of embraced it. So, wow, I didn't know that. Or we did the research that showed that 75% of whites, most whites in America don't have a friend of color. 
and it's even higher than even Delco Church. So we, we, we walked through a lot of stuff. I was pleasantly surprised with HarperCollins because as an African-American man, a Black man who worked in Christian conservative groups, sometimes you aren't always heard. And so for the, for the most part, like, for example, uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter contributed uh, to two of the chapters in the book. And she actually wrote a third chapter, I wish was in there, but two out of three is not bad. But here's the deal. At first, they were saying, well, we just want you to uh, rewrite it in your own words. I said, no, because it wasn't my experience. And then I shared, you know, people of color listen to more than one voice, where in your culture, you just hear one voice. And they said, well, I didn't know that. And then I had some more research from a Dr. Erwin Nichols that documents that people, just like men and women process differently, well, people of different cultures, we're all human, so it's nothing biologically different, but we tend to process information differently. And so we went through that and showed it, and they said, we never knew it, never heard that. And so I said, well, that's really important because when we had integration and we had Black teachers teaching Black students, they knew us, they knew how we learned. When we went to the integrated schools or the white schools, the white teachers did not know how we learned. So we had to learn how of European process, we got information, but there's no relationship. In the black community, there was nurturing, there was information and relationship. I said, it can make a real big difference when you go to a new school and you're different and blah, blah, blah. And I said, so, and so they were like really extremely open to that. Or uh, we're talking about different things. And, I, as, and so I keep sometimes, because it's so new to me, even at my age, I, I sometimes I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's, it's really different because I've worked with publishing companies before, but I've never had this respect before uh, with a publishing company. But, but a couple of things, Dr. Karen, they are the biggest publishers in America. And I think I know why they are, because they do listen. Just like we talked about earlier, they really do listen intently and they kind of figure out what's best. And you know, they let you help them figure out what's best. Because there are parts they were writing, uh, for example, it came out by this new racial tension. And so I said, I said, now, the racial tension is not new, but if you're or Caucasian and you're not 75%, it may be new to you. But for people of color, this is not new. And so I just shared it with them. I said, you guys are editors. Y'all can make this sound good. But how can we, we need to have both? And they say, they say, you're exactly right. So both parts are in the book. And it gives a big perspective. And I say the book can't be binary. It can't just be black and white. We got the people, Native Americans and, and different people who contributed to the book and, and so are our endorsers. So that's really been exciting and new to me. So, so that kind of gives me hope too. You know, I'm hearing in what you're saying now that even the principles of true diversity mm-hmm. were a part of how this book was created. that the publishers even were collaborating with you, not assuming that they knew everything or knew what was best. They recognized that there's wisdom, there's understanding around the whole table. You and Gary were collaborating, bringing your experiences together into this one place. And and in a sense, this is like a microcosm of what's possible because you get a better product doing that as opposed to if you just maintain only your own views, your own lenses along the way. So I want you to think about that and maybe extract from this, maybe some lessons or or maybe some wisdom about what you would share with people that they could do going forward. Like it could be young people, what Mm -hmm. words you might say to them. Maybe it's people in the workplace that builds on that experience of actually writing the book. Well, you know, I I think, you have to learn to work together. 
And, you know, when you work together, you're going to disagree on some things. And some things you can disagree agreeably and other things you, you've got to submit and let stuff go. But, you, but I think the other thing, you have to ask the questions. You have to ask the questions about why this is this way or can we do it this way? And then the other thing, we have to really listen. Often when we have conflict or difference of opinion, I'm not trying to listen to you, Dr. Karen. I'm trying to reload to figure out how to win the, the argument or the disagreement. But if one of us wins, then we lose as, as a couple, as an organization. And so especially if I'm an organization, I'm trying to produce products and increase my market. Then I've got to listen to that different voice that may increase my sales 10 to 15%, even though it's one person of color or a different gender or whatever. So I, I think that's important. I would encourage people to read histories of different people, different cultures by people in those particular cultures and let them be the experts on them. So I, so I think there's a lot to be gained by our differences. And I think that's what God knew and talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, if we, if one of us suffer, we all suffer. What happens in America, we suffer. We don't know we're suffering because we don't really know what that person's going through. And it says when we celebrate, we should all rejoice. And so we can't do it together if we don't know what's really important to each other. And so I think the body of Christ has hurt itself by not being diverse, by not having these conversations that go beyond conversation to actions that change lives. Actions that change lives. That's a really important part. So let me ask this, how can people get the book? You know, how can they get a hold of you if they want to know more? Because the book's coming out soon and you've got pre-orders now. Yes, uh, the book comes out officially June 7th of this year. and uh, But you can pre-order it now. Uh, in fact, I've done some devotions for different organizations and they're actually pre-ordering uh, the book now, which is really great that it helps us. And if you want to help us with sales, uh, of pre-orders is the same as order on, on June 7th, but we're, we're really excited. You can go to Amazon and get it. It's all set up already. Um, you can get me, just go to my website. It's called Clarence Schuler, not Clarence, but Clarence Schuler. It's only, uh, it's S-H-U-L-E-R, my last name. So it's ClarenceSchuler.com to connect with me or to email me if you want me to come speak or do something like that, uh, or just check out our website, see what's going on. We're my youngest daughter is my part-time admin, so she, she's in the process trying to overhaul my website. She said, Dad is old. We got to do something. So, uh, so I'm learning from her. So that's, that's how you get it. Thanks, thanks for asking. I appreciate that. So people can get the book now, even though it's not officially out, they can go ahead and purchase it. If I'm a business person, if I'm an mm. executive in a corporation and I purchase this book, what might be a benefit for me in terms of leading and running my organization? What might I be able to take away from it that I can use at work every day? Well, the first thing I do, if I'm an executive, I would get the book and read it myself and say, where am I falling short here? If I am falling short, or I'd ask the question, what could I do? What can I do better in regards to diversity? I write down what didn't I know and how can I apply what I know in my personal life, but also to my business? I think the next thing, if I'm the CEO, then I got, I got, I got all my leadership team reading this thing. And, and then we're sitting down, we're talking through it. We're, we're having this process. Uh, if we're a male-dominated uh, organization, then I'm getting the women in my organization to read this book and say, come talk to me in the context of gender 
you know, we're not talking race now, but talking about in gender, what do we miss and how can we be better? And so I, and then I get, I talked, I have my board. So from the top down, we're going, but also from the bottom up. So I would take this and let this be an exercise and say, how can we translate some of these principles? So if we're not Christians, how can we translate some of these principles into our organization to make us more diverse? Because I know if we're more diverse, we'll be more profitable. And then I would even ask the question, it depends on where we are as far as humanitarian, how can we make the workplace better for people who are working in our workplace? If we're a predominantly white organization, we have some people of different, Asian, whatever, how can we make it better for them? Should we have councils where we have Asians, Hispanic, uh, African-American, uh, female, all these different councils? And, and it's not really segregation, but they can come together and have a safety and they communicate to the parent body, so to speak. And we can really learn and grow together and we can celebrate all these different groups and we come together. And, and some of them, why don't we celebrate being white? And I said, well, you're the dominant culture. That's one of the perks of being white. You're in charge, but you can also learn and benefit and we can grow together. And that doesn't mean whites can't join these different organizations within your organization and learn. But I would, I would just do a, you know, I had a privilege of speaking at the Evangelical Press Association the other night as a keynote. And my thing is that, you know, we can benefit if we're willing to work together. How can we serve each other? And, and what I did with them, I said, we need to have a spiritual checkup. You know, how are we doing spiritually? I mean, you're influencing 20 million people, but how are you doing that? So in my organization, I would say, do we need some kind of diversity checkup to see how we're doing? You know, Fortune magazine used to do that every year. They would award or recognize the companies that did the best in diversity. And so I think an organization could do that internally and uh, just become really good at that, you know, or, or become better at that. But, but you got to ask the questions and you got to listen to the answers. But it does you no good if you don't make any application. I'm going to throw out a thought because one of my <laughs> clients is in a space that's um, very diverse in terms of the work that they do and the places where they work. And they actually started also a white council because the okay. white people wanted to start a council. And the reason is because they were learning things that they hadn't known before and that mm. they hadn't seen before. And they recognized that they could leverage their influence mm. in a way that was more helpful if they could collectively figure out how to do it. So they actually came together to really be of benefit mm. and that was a great idea, you know, in their case. So yeah. think outside the box, you know. You that's, can, that's great. Yeah, that's you know? great. That's a great idea. I hadn't thought about that. That's a great idea. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. And it was yeah. really working for them. You know, it's yeah. really working yeah. for them. They've got whites right alongside people of color and others going after the same objectives and using whatever privilege they have or whatever gifts they have, whatever platforms, influence to make that difference. Well, the Harvard Business Review had a book come out. It was a compilation of articles. Gosh, what was I? Uh, it was, I think it was Managing Cross Culture or something like that. You may can Google it and come up with it. I'll have to find it. But it was really great. And it, and it, it alluded to some of that, that in order for people of color and females to be successful in business, that there had to be mentors, primarily white mentors in that company. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. who helped them to be successful, who helped them with all the ropes, how to be successful. But the CEOs had to really want to be replaced when they retired, or if it wasn't them, but pretty soon and put in place by people of color or females for that to happen. 
So I think that's that's a that's a great idea. And and even years ago, over 20 years ago, I don't know if Texas instrument still exists, but the former CEO said one of the problems we have is that we're running out of white males. He said he said we don't have that resource. So he said women and people of color are more available than white males because we're just running out. So I like that idea. I hadn't thought about that about white councils, but it's good. But but also. I like the fact they were doing it to serve and use their influence. That's what they influence more. Yeah, that's what they were doing it for. Yeah, but to do that, they weren't insecure. They had security about who they were. So that's a big deal. And a lot of people don't want to share power, and that becomes a problem for businesses being successful if the leadership does not want to share power mm-hmm. or delegate power. Exactly. So as we're winding up here, what? additional words of wisdom would you like to leave for my audience of corporate executives? Something maybe we haven't covered yet or haven't said that you think is important. Well, I would challenge, and not in a bad way, corporate executives, uh, male, female, whatever your, your culture or race is, to develop a friendship, maybe even outside the company. If you work out or where you do outside of work, if you run or whatever, with someone who's different and let that be your lab of developing friendships cross-culturally. And that will pay dividends for you personally, but it'll it'll also overflow uh, back in the workplace. Because sometimes when we have cross-cultural friendships, and I'm not saying we don't, we should, in the workforce, you still have the office politics. You still have the organizational things that could hinder some things. But if you're recreating with someone who's different or playing tennis or or whatever you want to do, uh, that's different gardening, whatever, you don't have that politics in between you and you can get more answers and really works. So it could be really beneficial. So I, I would encourage them to do that. And not that you could force somebody to do it, but even at work, I would say, have it, you know, if you say, hey, I want you guys to do this or all of you to do this, then come back a couple of weeks later, has anyone done that? If you have, how's it going? If you haven't, why not? And, you know, it's not surely, certainly something you can't be penalized for financially, but of course, some organizations do penalize people for their diversity, but uh, I find it really interesting. But by and large, I think that takes the pressure off and just encourage your leaders who are leaders in so many areas to take the initiative to build some cross-cultural friendships outside of work and to see, see how that goes. That's a great challenge. You know, <laughs> in other words, even in the workplace, starting from the top, modeling it from the top. The person can establish cross-cultural friendship and relationships. We're talking about more than just those acquaintances. We're talking about more than the tolerance. We're talking about real friendships that people can establish. So I know you've covered a lot today, um, Dr. Clarence. I thank you so much. And I'm just going to summarize just a couple things, not very many, but just a couple. And that is, it's worth it to have these cross-cultural friendships, and they are valuable in both directions. Each person gets a chance to learn, gets a chance to grow, to expand their horizons. And you can go farther together Mm -hmm. than you can go by yourself. You can go to different places together that you might not be able to go to by yourself is what I'm hearing. And I'm hearing that, yes, it's going to mean getting out of the comfort zone. It's going to mean being willing not to be right about everything, being willing to listen and to ask clarifying questions, to learn about the other person and to share at a deep level. And the payoff and the benefit 
is worth it in your personal life, in your business life, and the world is even better. And as marketplace ministry leaders who belong to God, he's calling us to embrace the diversity which he has created. So when we're celebrating each other, we are celebrating with the angels in heaven over God's creation. So thank you so much, Dr. Clarence, for giving us this picture to take forward. And I'm going to close with one verse. And this verse comes from Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.